In October 1967, 26-year-old Mary Sevier set off from Sussex in England to ride to India on a motorcycle. The bike she had chosen for her trip was a 1966 BSA Bantam with a single-cylinder 175cc two-stroke engine. She reached India and kept going all the way around the world. The journey would take her nine years, making her the first British woman to circumnavigate the world alone on a motorcycle. My name is Martin Moore, and I'm a journalist and filmmaker. In November 2021, I sat down with Mary and asked her to tell her story. Episode 2. A Tumble in Turkey. The coast road on the, on the south coast road of, of Turkey is very indented and the road was sort of go up and down and round and round and it was quite late one afternoon and I was very tired. I hadn't seen anybody all afternoon. I hadn't seen any, any habitation whatsoever. And I suppose because I was tired, uh, the front wheel hit the gravel on the side of the road and the bike tipped over. So I went across on my shoulder on the Halley Hansen uh, without a scratch mark. And in those days I wore glasses and my glasses fell off. And without my glasses, I couldn't see a thing. And I thought, you can't get up because you've got to find your glasses. So I lay there patting the ground in sort of ever-widening circles. I found my glasses, put them on, by which time one vehicle came in my direction, going in my direction, a truck, and two vehicles came in the opposite direction. And all these Turkish men got out and they were all standing looking down at me and I was trying my best not to cry. And they said in Turkish, and because I'd lived with a Turkish family, I could understand quite a bit of Turkish. They said, of course, you know who she is, don't you? It's the English girl who's going around the world on a motorbike. <laughs> and I felt, oh, I really felt absolutely terrible because it was so humiliating. <laughs> I was lying in the road on, on, with the luggage that had fallen off the bike and uh, it really was bad. Anyway, they were very, very sweet, and the ones going in my direction uh, got me on my feet. They took the luggage off and put it in the back of their truck, and I went off on the bike, and I followed them, and then after about five kilometres or so, they stopped. And I can remember sitting on the wall of a bridge, uh, and the three men got out, and I thought, oh, this is what my mother said would happen. And I thought, oh no, oh no, this is terrible. What am I going to do? They gave me a cigarette. They gave me some water to drink. And when I'd finished the cigarette and finished the water, they then got back into their truck and I got back on my motorbike and we went on. And then after about another five kilometers or so, we stopped again and they gave me a cigarette and they gave me water. And I thought, I think that they are trying to stop me from suffering from shock. And this is why they are making me stop and have a smoke, which I, and I didn't smoke, and have a drink. So that, as I say, I would not suffer from shock after falling off the bike. And I, I think that probably was the explanation because there wasn't any other explanation. And then I got to their town and somebody ran down the road to get the, the Turkish uh, young woman who taught English. So she came and acted as a translator. 
and they found me a hotel and I think I damaged the luggage rack because there is a picture of my luggage rack being soldered on. Um, and normally when this sort of happened in small villages, if I wanted any work on the motorbike, it normally was done for free because they were just so pleased to see a foreigner. Because in those days, although I thought there were lots of tourists in Turkey, Turkey was unknown. It wasn't until I came back to live in England that I suddenly found Turkey was on the map. And I thought, oh, for heaven's sakes, how many years ago was I in Turkey? <laughs> um, so I then continued on, got to Tehran, and I don't remember it, but I have found a postcard that I sent to my mother where it says, I walked into the British Embassy at nine o'clock at night, pitch dark, absolutely exhausted. My face was cut to ribbons because I'd ridden through a sandstorm because it was quite a lot of desert west of Tehran. And an Englishman came towards me and said, welcome Mary to Tehran. And I just sat down in the floor because I couldn't believe it. And I said, how do you know who I am? And he said, we've been expecting you for the past few days. Now, I don't know whether it's because my mother, who was told not to ever intervene, had sent a letter to the embassy saying, I do hope you don't mind, but I'll be sending my mails and so will all the family care of you using you as a post restaurant. Or whether it was because there was an English uh, couple, family that I was going to stay with, he worked for a shipping company uh, and had, had been posted to Tehran. Uh, or whether perhaps they'd been in and socialising and said, we're expecting a friend of ours to arrive on a motorcycle and should be coming to the embassy to pick up a mail. Anyway, I have to say, it was very, very overwhelming, but it was absolutely marvellous after such a hard day riding the motorbike to be greeted like that by an Englishman. <laughs> uh, uh, and then... Uh, the bike needed some attention. I think it was in Tehran where it was decided I needed new tires. Um, and I can, I can see a little fat man with glasses. And he, he was a Dunlop agent. And he said, I think you need new tires. He said, we'll give you the two new, we'll give you new tires. So he gave me two new tires which was, I mean, it was so unexpected, it really was. The hospitality that I got and the kindness from people. Uh, and then um, I wasn't waiting for papers. Now, I think I was waiting for something to be done to the bike. So I then hitchhiked, uh, which probably wasn't the best thing to do, but it was okay. I hitchhiked down to Shiraz, and then I didn't like Shiraz at all, so I turned around and came out. Uh, and I went to, there's a big, huge uh, ruin there called Persepolis. And I went round that and there was, there was nobody there at all. Um, I was terribly sad, all these places that I'm sure people would want to visit, but they, they, well, they certainly can't now. Um, and then I came back up to Tehran and then left Tehran and I then went east. Uh, no, I didn't. I went from Tehran, I went up to the Caspian Sea because I wanted to see the scenery. Um, so I went along the Caspian Sea uh, and then to, where was it? No, Erzurum was in Turkey. It would have been Mashhad, I think. And then I went down to the border with Afghanistan. And I said goodbye to all, all the uh, passport people in, in uh, Iran. And I went across no man's land to Afghanistan, to the Afghan border. And unbeknown to me, my visa to get into Afghanistan had expired. It was only valid for a year. 
and I had been out of England for about a year or the visa had expired, just expired. So they wouldn't let me in. And I had to go back into Iran and the Iranians said, why have you come back? And I said, because the Afghans won't let me in. And they said, that's absolutely absurd. Why not, for heaven's sakes? So in the end, they kept my bike. A bus, I was put onto a bus and I didn't pay for it. And I had to go all the way back to Mashhad. And of course, I ended there at their weekend. So I had to then spend money on staying in a guest house. And then when the uh, Afghan consulate opened, I then had to apply for a new visa to get into Afghanistan. Back I went on the bus. And then when I arrived at the Iranian border to collect my motorbike, oh, they wanted to have a party because I'd come back again. And then I went into Afghanistan and, and, and I just, the roads were very good. Uh, the main road around the country was very, very good. I think it was cement. I don't think it was tarred. I think it was cement. And at that time, so much aid was poured into Afghanistan. It was... It was not good. Um, it was a power game between the powers. And it would be Russia, America, Italy, about the only country, as far as I could work out, that wasn't helping out with aid was Britain. And that's probably because Britain was kicked out of Afghanistan in three Afghan wars in, I don't know, the 1800s, I think it was. So the British obviously had learned. Uh, there were... The British Council was there, and there, were, there was a couple who worked for the British Council teaching English. There was an English woman who, I think she worked in the office. Um, there was an English volunteer with the United Nations. There was an English volunteer, I think he came from British Council as well. And in fact, I am now in touch with two of the boys as they were then, uh, that I knew in Kabul. And we were, there was a group of us single people, oddballs, I suppose. Um, and with a job I eventually got, I had the use of a Land Rover. So when we had weekends, um, we used to all bundle into the Land Rover, God knows how many of us, uh, and just, just disappear off into the countryside. And the two boys who were volunteers, two English boys who were volunteers could speak Farsi. So we used to go and sit in cafes and um, we always dressed very soberly, I suppose. Um, but in those days, Kabul was very westernised. Women wore jackets and skirts and probably Lyle stockings. Generally, they would have their legs covered, but it would be with stockings, not trousers. Um, the two Afghan women who worked in my office, um, one of them sometimes would come to work just with a sort of headscarf on, but that probably was because she'd gone to visit an elderly relation before she came to work. But otherwise, they were all very, very westernised. A lot of the educated Afghan women had been educated overseas, um, probably in France, I think. Um, and how I got the job was, 
I'm not sure that I actually want to say it. Um, I was offered three secretarial jobs when I was in Kabul because word went round that there was an English girl who had turned up on a motorcycle by herself and she used to be a court shorthand writer. It had the most fantastic snob value being a court shorthand. I mean, all I had was secretarial experience, that was all. Um, but being a court shorthand writer was different. And one assumes that you don't lie if you say you were a court shorthand writer because you're going to be found out very, very quickly. Not that I think I ever had to use, well, I did in South Africa, but most of the time I never had to use it. Um, and I was staying with an American embassy family whose children had been at the military school, military dependent school in Istanbul. And uh, Brownie, who was either second or third officer uh, in the diplomatic corps in the American embassy, but as a, at some sort of a reception, international reception. And he met the British ambassador and he said, oh, um, have you met your compatriot, Mary, who arrived here on a motorcycle? And the British ambassador very, very snottily said, I suppose another hippie smashed on hash. And Brownie said, oh, fiddle. Can you stop? Yes, of course. Oh, hang on. Where's the phone, Mary? Let me take it. Can I move? Yes, you can move. Oh, Just God. watch the... Um... Oh, shit. <laughs> Action. I was staying with an American diplomatic family. Their children had been at the American military dependent school in Istanbul, and they very kindly... Uh, asked me to stay uh, because they had arrived in Kabul in September and they had said if you're still in Afghanistan in September come to the American Embassy and look us up uh, and, and, and come and stay because the children would love to see you. So I did uh, and I was in fact waiting to collect uh, a whole lot of new documents for the motorbike not only my carnet, uh, insurance papers because I, I, I did have insurance um, driving license didn't matter. I'm not sure about the international license, whether I... No, I, I don't know what happened with, the, with, with, with an international license. Uh, but Brownie, who was second or third diplomat uh, in the American Embassy, was at a reception, international reception, and he met the British ambassador. And Brownie said to the British ambassador, have you met a compatriot of yours, Mary, who came out here on a motorcycle by herself? And the ambassador turned around and said, oh, very snottily, oh, I suppose another hippie smashed on hash. And Brownie said, if you actually met her at a reception like this, you would never, ever imagine that she knew what a motorbike was, let alone had ridden one out here by herself from England. And later on, I did actually meet the British ambassador. And he said, huh, well, of course, you joined the other side, didn't you? meaning that I had gone to work for the Americans and not for the British. And I said, well, I did go to the embassy, British embassy, and ask if there was a job available because I thought it would be nice to stay in Afghanistan. And the answer was no. And I said I was offered three jobs. Uh, one was with the American airline Pan Am, which I don't think exists anymore. They also ran Ariana, which was the Afghan airline. 
Um, they didn't do an awful lot of business. They had an awful lot of staff to write out the tickets. I think it's probably about four or five tickets were written out each day. Um, and there must have been at least six or seven staff to write them out. Um, I don't think the manager's wife was very keen on my going to work there. Uh, I didn't think I would have got on with him terribly well. The Dutch consulate, which really was a commercial office, uh, offered me a job uh, as secretary. Uh, the man who interviewed me was second in command, but he made out that he was the consul, but I actually knew that he wasn't. So, and he, he fancied himself, no end, uh, and didn't want to get that job. And then there was an American foundation that uh, decided, uh, the, the representative, American representative decided he wanted to meet me. He was looking for an administrative assistant, but she was supposed to be American. They had always had career women out from San Francisco, but they decided that they were going to cut back. And because there was a huge, uh, hu huge uh, American um, community in Afghanistan, lots of um, wives there, um, it was felt that they Glenn, the representative, could probably find a wife who would work as administrative assistant. And he'd been interviewing quite a lot of people. Yes, they they would have been suitable, but if their husband was to go off to India on a conference or to Tehran or back to America or, or anywhere else for that matter, the wives would have gone with them. And Glenn said he couldn't run an office like that. He had to have somebody who was there working. And then he heard about me amongst the American community because I was staying with the American diplomatic family. Um, and there was a story that had been passed around the Amer American community about the English girl who came out on a motorcycle <laughs> and the fact that she didn't know what the four-letter word was. And this was in the days, well, certainly when I left England, which was a, a, a year earlier. Lady Chatterley's Lover had just been published and there was a big, big thing lot of publicity about the four-lettered word but it was not allowed to be printed in the newspapers and you certainly didn't get it on any news media and I got called as working in the as the court shorthand writer so some of the evidence I had to actually type out and it normally was the domestic court which was held on the first Monday of each month and in those days, if a woman wanted to try and get maintenance out of her husband, she would have to go for um, a separation order. And then after five years, she could present the separation order and the evidence taken and get a divorce. And so these women would trot in. And whereas their family had been saying to them the whole time, oh, for Christ's sake, do shut up about your marriage. Just learn to live with it. There were these nice, kindly magistrates all looking down at her and saying, now then, Mrs. Bloggs, do tell us, what was your marriage like? And she would say, oh, he used to swear something rotten at me. And all this was done in a very good Sussex accent, which I found quite difficult to translate into shorthand because I didn't know whether I was supposed to write down what they were saying or write down what it should have been. <laughs> uh, and she, oh, he used to swear something rotten at me. Well, what do you mean by that? 
Oh, I couldn't possibly tell you. Well, you actually have to tell us because we have to make up our minds whether it was abusive, uh, whether it, it was unpleasant, um, and whether you really shouldn't have to put up with it. So she would come out with a string of words, some of which I had never heard before in my life. So after a few months, the chief clerk, Mr. Booker, who'd been their man and boy 40 years, called me in, never ever called me. I didn't even know he knew my name was Mary. He called me Miss Sevier the whole time. Terribly, terribly straight list. Very, very nice. Call me Miss Sevier, sit down. Miss, Miss Sevier, I need to talk to you about your spelling. So I said, uh, oh, I thought my spelling was very good. There are certain words that you're not very good at. So I said, oh, like what? I would like to know, out of curiosity, what you think the four-letter word is. So I thought, oh. Well, um, squirming around in my chair. Um, well, actually, I don't really know because, you see, I've never read Lady Chatterley's Lover. And they don't actually tell you in the newspapers what the four-lettered word is. And he said, Miss Sevier, it's hardly surprising when you spend it, spell it with five letters beginning with P-H. And on the strength of that story, having gone round the American community, which I didn't know about, although I had told it to some American people, this got reported to Glenn, who was looking for an administrative assistant, and he said, well, she's got to be something different. She is a court shorthand writer. She's English, but maybe we can get over that. So he asked me to go for an interview. And he really was much more interested in finding out whether this story was true about my not being able to spell the four-letter word. But in the end, he said, well, would you be prepared to stay here? He said, I can't just have you here for six months or so. So I said, I promise I'll stay here and I might stay too. I'm not in a hurry to go anywhere at all. I wasn't going around the world. I was supposed to be going to India, but you know, that was sort of an open question as well. So I did end up staying two years. Um, I became his administrative assistant. Uh, he had to really argue to get me the job. San Francisco head office said, she's English. So, well, she's English. We're an American foundation, a uh, very small charity. It wasn't, um, I don't know, it wasn't Rockefeller, it wasn't Getty. It was very, very small indeed, which meant, hopefully, that all the other offices that they had throughout Asia did what we did, keep an eye on where the money went. Um, anyway, in the, in the end, San Francisco head office said, yeah, well, if you can get her the work permit and the residence permit, yeah, okay, you can have her. So because of all the senior people that I knew in the American embassy, I was taken down by the first secretary. Uh, yeah, he wasn't, he wasn't the deputy ambassador. He was the one after that. I was taken down to Pakistan in his diplomatic plated Land Rover. And we stayed in a very, very smart hotel in Peshawar. And the staff couldn't believe it because Bert had been stationed in Pakistan in one of the American consulates and they knew his wife. And they couldn't believe that here was Bert turning up with a, a young English female. 
Ah, oh, dear me. And I suppose somebody must have, somebody in the hotel must have said something to him. I mean, certainly not to me, but obviously they knew him. Uh, anyway, I had to go and apply for a residence permit and uh, a work permit. And then back we went to Afghanistan. And then I was told that my residence permit and my work permit were available down in Peshawar. So Bert again took me down in the Land Rover. And this time, actually, I thought it was a bit stupid. We stayed at totally different ends of the hotel, <laughs> which I thought was pretty suspect. The first time we had rooms next door to each other. But the second time we were totally, I mean, literally one end of the hotel to the other. And I thought that strikes me as being very, very suspect. Um, and then back I went to Afghanistan, so I was then allowed to be employed and I had to open an American bank account uh, in San Francisco. So it looked as though I was employed from America, which is what I had said I was. Um, all my salary, I don't know, it was something like, if I remember, I think I've got the bank statements uh, somewhere. Uh, I think I got 350 US dollars a month which was gold dust to me, rather than being paid in, 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 in Afghanis. Um, when I wanted money, I went down to the Money Bazaar uh, with a check on my Bank America account, handed over the check, and I was given the equivalent in, in, in Afghanis. Um, I started off living in a flat uh, up on the third floor, penthouse, and then the man who owned the block decided, because I had a big flat roof, he was going to build two extra bedrooms, but he wanted the rent for a three-bedroom flat. And I said, well, no, thank you. So then I told everybody in the office, and the men in the office then decided that they would look for a house for me. So they found me this uh, house with mud walls and tiny little windows so that in the winter, uh, when it was freezing, there was a lot of snow, and Kabul was 6,000 feet up. Um, the cold didn't really come in, and in the summer it was very, very hot. Uh, so again, small windows made it cool, and the walls were terribly, terribly thick. Um, and I entered into the social life in Afghanistan, and because my boss was a bachelor, he would be invited to two or three things a night because you had to find your own entertainment. You could, it was very difficult to even get BBC World Service because it was just so difficult there. And so he would be invited to a cocktail party, to a buffet dinner, and to a sit-down dinner. And I would have to try and arrange that he could go to all three. And if it was a sit-down dinner, very often, I would be invited because they wanted to marry up the couples. Apart from which, everybody in the community, and this really would have been Americans, everybody in the community wanted to see who was this English girl who'd arrived on a motorbike who was working for the, uh, for the Asia Foundation. So it was really, really nice. Um, I, wasn't, I couldn't drink because I had to drive my boss. I had to go and pick my boss up take him to the party and then drive him back, which meant we didn't have to have a driver from, from, from the office. Um, at weekends, I was allowed to use any of the vehicles. So uh, we had a, a, there was a, a gang of us of um, single people. Uh, and I used to fill the Land Rover with all my friends and off we would go. 
Um, I had a fantastic life. I really did. It was, I mean, it was out of this world. I, I couldn't believe it. Um, and then the time came for me to decide, well, I was going to continue uh, with my motorcycle. And in the meantime, I suppose I must have said it would be nice to go back because I'd been out of England for three years. And I was offered a Land Rover by an American who was going to relocate from America to the land of his forefathers, Ireland. And he wanted the Land Rover delivered to Dublin. And in the end, uh, we had it all fitted up. He had a whole lot of boxes of books that he wanted. He worked for the university in, in Kabul. He had a bad back, so he didn't want to drive, drive back overland. His wife certainly didn't, and they'd got children as well. So I guess I just arrived at the right time. We fitted up a board on top of all the boxes, and I had a mattress and my sleeping bag, because I was going to sleep in the vehicle for, for security. Um, and I was allowed some space, so I have got two tin trunks in a cupboard here in my flat, which I brought back from Afghanistan with all sorts of things that I wanted to, to, to safeguard and not to send home by post or anything like that. Uh, and then when people in the foreign community found out that I was going to be in Europe, I was offered three cars to bring back to Afghanistan because foreigners were allowed to import a car duty-free. So I was offered a Mercedes by German I was offered, there was another vehicle, but I can't remember what it was, but I was offered, there was a Swedish man who worked for the United Nations, and he had ordered a brand new Peugeot 504 from the factory in France, and you couldn't buy it, you, you had to be on a waiting list. And in the end, I said, yes, okay, I'd go and collect that. So I got back to England and met up with all my family. And then I went over to France and picked up the car and did all the paperwork, took it back to England. And of course, there I was, arriving in my village in Sussex in this brand new Peugeot 504 saloon car, when everybody thought that I was supposed to, supposed to be in Afghanistan on a motorcycle. The Merry Motorcycle Podcast is the unedited audio track from a film about Mary Sevier made by Martin Moore and produced by Saul Jevons. Listen to episode three now. Mm -hmm.